what existed far away while he never wondered. It would take Jane years to reconcile her father with the man she'd grown up imagining on the strange, dark slide into sleep. One long-ago morning, she'd gone with her mother to a post office in a small Sierran town and seen a picture of a very young man wanted for armed robbery. He appeared delicate and misunderstood in the grainy photograph, fugitive as an angel. Her mother found her staring forlornly at that picture among the sad gallery. Jane was still a young child, but her face assumed an expression of concealment. For years afterwards, Jane would stare at certain men on streets and try to follow them. Her mother, Mary, would nod sadly and say, No, he doesn't look like Owens at all, because it was the criminal's young face. Mary wanted to correct the error, but she'd burned every photograph she had of Tom Owens. Jane was born in Gray Star, a settlement in remote southeastern Oregon, where her cries were lost in miles and miles of orchards, stilled by a constant, omniscient rain. One of the people who lived in the communal house drove to town to wire Mary's message to Owens. Eight days later, she'd heard nothing. Staring out at the endless gray, she wrote a letter to her mother and told her she'd named the baby Jane, the name she'd once given her only doll. They'd moved many times in the decade since, always because of a man. First, there was the one who repaired string instruments and lived with nine cats. He gave Mary a guitar and made a high chair where he allowed Jane to eat with her hands. Then, for a long time, there was the man who constantly traveled, following the greatest band on earth. He left them a truck after he'd only begun to teach Mary how to play chords. Then came their months in Seattle, with the man who almost eclipsed Owens because he was beautiful, although he wanted to see them only weekends and said goodbye every Sunday by noon. Though he professed little aptitude for children, he taught Jane to read, because he couldn't stand the garbled language of toddlers and wanted to rush her to the age of conversation. It was this man who first showed them Owens' picture in the newspaper. With the small photograph composed of dots, Mary tried to prove to Jane that her father was not the thief whose face she'd memorized from a post office wall. In the article, Owens said he was the father of no children. The city man's weekends shrunk. He started to come on Saturday morning, still leaving punctually before Sunday lunch. When his visits began at midnight, they moved again. But by then, Tom Owens seemed to them the most famous man in the world. They moved to a place with natural hot springs where they tried to learn to sit and not think. There, in a mud whirlpool, Jane told a group of children her father was rich. And I'm the heir to the crown of Curacao, a boy replied. Actually, it wasn't unusual for the children Jane met in communes and ashrams to claim lineage so distant it would be impossible ever to trace while they lived in trailers and trucks on bare mattresses. She once befriended a family of Hungarian royalty whose only proof was a rare hereditary disease called porphyria. 
They had never been to school, and their mother taught them out of a book of Elizabethan plays and a video of the movie they watched over and over again in their van. Finally, a woman called Bixter led them to a mountain town where they lived in a wooden cabin at a camp once operated during the warm months by the Park Service. Most nights, the men built a bonfire and the women cooked, everyone watching the weather, sniffing for the hidden pith of bread that meant snow in the sky. Jane understood that no place they had ever lived was where they were from. Auburn was the name of that place, and although she'd never seen it, she knew it from her mother's stories. She drew the one wide main street.